to do that. Um, sadly, over the years, there are so many different things that happen and continue to happen that cause us to say, afterward, we will never forget, and I pray that's the case, that we will never forget every time a sacrifice is made for the, for the good of the nation. And so thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you that you modeled that for us in Christ who made a sacrifice that we will remember and commemorate a little later in our service today that was for the good of all humankind. We're thankful to be Americans. We're proud to be Americans. And we honor those who have gone before us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone agreed and said... Amen. Hey, grab a Bible and go with me to the Gospel of, of Matthew and uh, find the fifth chapter. I uh, want to give a special greeting to anybody here who might be a guest with us this morning. It's always a great joy to welcome guests into our services. And I want to welcome everybody who's joining us online, wherever you might be. Uh, thanks for taking the time to tune in uh, with us. We are involved in a sermon series right now, a study where we are working and this is good for you to hear if you're a guest. We're working our way verse by verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. We start in chapter 1, and we have found our way to chapter 5. It's going to be a pretty lengthy study because there are 28 chapters in the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, as we come together this weekend, we're in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 through 37. Now, I told you when we began this study... Um, that I want, I just simply want you to know more about Jesus than you've ever known before in your life. Whether you grew up in, your, in church your entire life or whether this is all brand new to you, I want you to know him so much that you'll be able to talk about him and talk about him honestly all the time. A few months ago, I picked up a little book called Surprise the World, written by a man named Mark, uh, Michael Frost. It's a simple little book that talks about how you can share your faith with others, and it gives you a guide by taking the word bells, B-E-L-L-S, and using it as an acrostic where every letter starts for another word. And so the letters start for bless, eat, listen, learn, and scent. Bless, eat, listen, learn, and scent. That spells out the word bells. It's that second L that really captured my attention because it reminds us that we really as believers need to commit ourselves to learning as much as possible about the story of Jesus. We need to know the story of Jesus on a really personal way. And Michael Frost illustrated that in his book. He told about how he was speaking at a conference for a parachurch ministry called Christian Surfers in Australia. Uh, these are Christians who have dedicated themselves to sharing the message of Christ with young surfers. And so this was a conference being held for the staff workers. And during one of the sessions, he just asked all those who were there who their favorite surfer of all time was. And he said the response was overwhelming that almost all of them began to shout out the name Kelly Slater. Now, look at me, raised in the Midwest. I know nothing about surfing. I tried to surf one time when I was 14 years old and our family went on a trip to Hawaii. Other than that, nothing. Got no surfing experience or background at all. But as a casual sports fan, I'm familiar with the name Kelly Slater in the world of surfing because he's a pretty big deal. 11-time world champion, five times consecutive world champion between 1994 and 1998. The youngest world champion at the age of 20. The oldest world champion at the age of 39, which shows you his durability and staying power in that world. And so once he got the name Kelly Slater, he said, he being Michael Frost, the writer, said, okay, tell me what you know about Kelly Slater. And he said, what happened next took him by surprise. He said, the room didn't just erupt, it combusted. And he said, when I ask a bunch of surfers to tell me about, undoubtedly, 
the most famous and successful surfer in all history, they went crazy. And they just started shouting out things over the top of each other's voices. Said it was almost even hard to understand what they were saying. They were yelling things out like where he grew up and what kind of surfboard he used and, and what movies he'd been in and what television appearances he made appearances in and what movie stars and what actresses he had dated and on and on and on. He said it was pretty overwhelming. Later on in the session, a little bit further down in the session, he was talking about the needs, the need to fill our minds with the story of Jesus. And so he said to the same group of guys in the same setting, tell me what you know about Jesus. These same guys who just went crazy about Kelly Slater. Tell me what you know about Jesus. And he said at this time, the response was very different. It's not that they didn't know about Jesus. These were committed Christians. These were committed personal evangelists who were leading people to Christ routinely. But the response was much more calm and much more muted. And so they, they said things like, he is Lord, or he died for our sins, or he rose from the dead. And so what they were saying about Jesus was true. They were listing off things were like, that were like doctrinal beliefs. They were listing things that were like statements of faith. But then Frost said, I asked them point blank, why don't you speak about Jesus in the same way you speak about Kelly Slater? And then he writes, and this is our challenge today. We need to talk about Jesus the way surfers speak about Kelly Slater, and basically that means we need to talk about Jesus with absolute wonder. And that's why we're taking the time to study verse by verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew, because more than anything else, I want you to experience Jesus and know Jesus so much that you talk about him like he's your king. You talk about him like he's your hero. You talk about him like he's your friend, because he's all those things to believers like you and me. Now, so far, what we've done is we've looked at the early part of his life in Matthew chapters 1 through 4. We talked about his birth, and we talked about all the things that he was involved in in preparation to begin his vocational ministry. And now we find ourselves in one of the most famous moments in Jesus' life. In Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, we're talking about Jesus and his delivery of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. We're in the first part of it in Matthew chapter 5. And what we're seeing over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus challenging a religious system or environment that was focused solely on actions with absolutely no involvement of the heart. He was challenging a religious system that was all about the following of rules, but no involvement of the heart. And what he's doing is he's showing us over and over again how shallow that is through a series of contrasts. He's contrasting religion that's all about action with no involvement of the heart with righteousness, which is all about the heart. And whatever actions you do, whatever rules you follow, flow from having a right heart. And these contrasts, you've probably already noticed, all begin with words like this. They begin with words like, you have heard that it was said, or it has been said. And then Jesus follows that statement up by saying, but I tell you. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. You have heard that it was said describes the religion, the action with no involvement of the heart. But then Jesus goes on and says, but I tell you, and he talks about righteousness. A good example would have been last week when we came together. The first thing we read in verse 27 was, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But then in verse 28, Jesus goes on and says, but I tell you, 
that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See the difference, the contrast? You have heard that it was said, this is the religion, this is the rules to follow. But I tell you, basically, there's more to it than that. Because it's not just the avoidance of adultery that makes you sexually pure and sexually uh, strong. It's also, it's also having a pure heart before God. Well, we're going to see that again this morning with regard to the keeping of commitments. This is an unusual passage, but I think one that's really important for all of, it, all of us. We're going to see this contrast between religion and righteousness with regard to the keeping of commitments. So, if you've got your Bibles open to Matthew 5, go ahead and stand with me like we always do for the reading of God's Word. If you're a guest, again, so glad you're here. This might sound odd, but this is what we do every week. We make the public reading of Scripture part of our service. So, when it's time to read the passage that we're going to study... Because we love and respect God's Word, we stand in reverence for it. You follow along. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 through 37. But I want you to pause and look up here real quick. In your Bibles, remember, I've told you this before, the original, the original text of Scripture was not written with sen- in, uh, the ends of sentences and paragraph breaks or chapter breaks. Remember that? It was just all one story. Now, our modern English translators turned it into paragraphs and chapters and things like that. But oftentimes, what looks like to us should be two separate passages of Scripture really are all just one. And so we're going to start off reading about marriage and divorce. And it can make us think that it should be something we should study separate from what we're doing. But it's not because he just starts off using marriage and divorce as the greatest example of keeping your commitment. Okay? Having said that, you follow along. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oath you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head. You cannot even make one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of his word. Let's just begin with an explanation. I'm going to tell you, just like last week's message, there's a whole lot more explanation in this sermon than there is the development of the three points that you see on your insert there that we'll talk about a little bit later. It had become customary in Jesus's day for people to manipulate the interpretation of the law, the interpretation of the scripture, to get out of the keeping of commandments. Now, we've talked about the law a lot since we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, the law was the portion of Scripture that God gave to His children after Egyptian bondage that He wanted them to follow. This was an Old Testament thing that He wanted them to follow for three reasons. Number one, so that they could be different and distinct. He gave them the law for how they lived and how they behaved so that they could be different and distinct from the rest of the world. How many of you know God always wants His people to be different from the rest of the world? That includes you and me today. The second reason he gave the law was to teach them how to worship him. The third reason why he gave them the law was to show them how much they needed him because nobody was going to be able to follow the law completely, and it was going to reveal to them their need for God's help, and the help that God brought came in the person of Jesus. And so it had become customary in Jesus' day for people to manipulate the interpretation of the law and the Scriptures to get out of keeping their commitments. And a prime example would have been the very first illustration that Jesus used, and that would have been the commitment 
of marriage. Now, I'm going to push the pause button right here, and I want you to listen to me really close. I, I don't have a sermon on marriage for you today. This is not a sermon about marriage and divorce. This is a sermon about marriage as an illustration for the importance of keeping your commitments and your vows. If you're familiar with the Gospel of Matthew, you know that later down the road, we're going to get to Matthew chapter 19. We get to Matthew chapter 19. Jesus gives an extensive teaching about marriage and divorce, and we will tackle that subject when we get to Matthew chapter 19. We'll talk a little bit about it here, but this is not a sermon about marriage and divorce. It's just the first example that Jesus uses for the importance of keeping your commitment. Let me explain it to you. When two people would marry in Jesus' day, their vows were quite similar to the kind of vows that you and I are familiar with today. But the law said that if a man found anything, listen to this word, if a man found anything displeasing with his wife, he could free himself from his lifelong commitment by simply giving her a certificate of divorce. And when he did that, he would be absolutely 100% free from any further obligation to her. If he could give her a certificate of divorce, he could do it right on the spot. Then it would completely free him from his obligation to her. Now, ladies, I want you to listen to me because things have changed dramatically over the years. Back then, women had absolutely no, everyone say no, no legal rights. You had no legal rights if you were a woman. And what that means, practically speaking, in this context is while a husband could initiate a divorce from his wife, a wife could not initiate a divorce from her husband. She had no right or authority to do that. And here are the words from the scriptures that all of this was based on. I'm going to put Deuteronomy 24 and verse 1 up on the screen. Now, Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 is just the first part of a long sentence. And so it might seem odd that we end at the end of the verse because the sentence goes on, but we don't have time to look at the entire thing. But in Deuteronomy 24 and verse 1, this is what we read. If a man marries a woman who becomes, here's that word again, displeasing to him because he finds something, here's another important word, indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. This is what can happen. A wife could be displeasing to her husband because he found something indecent about her. He could sit down and write her a letter of divorce, send her from the house, and it would be over. Now, here's the deal. In ancient days, there were conservative rabbis, or in other words, there were conservative teachers of the law who taught that the something indecent referred to there in verse 1 of Deuteronomy 24 referred exclusively to sexual misconduct, sexual unfaithfulness. However, at the same time, there were liberal rabbis. There were liberal teachers of the law who taught that that something indecent referred to anything at all you might not like about your wife, anything about her that you found displeasing. Now, let me ask you a question having said that. Which interpretation do you think became the most popular of the day? It was the latter. It was the liberal interpretation of the law that became the most popular of the day, which is disappointing because we go back to Deuteronomy 24 and verse 1, that word there that is used in my NIV Bible, that word indecent, that's the Hebrew word. Remember, the Old Testament was originally written in the Hebrew language. That's the Hebrew word, erva. You can see it up on the screen there. And literally translated, it means something improper or something shameful, improper or shameful behavior. 
Now, I'll tell you this morning, I don't have any doubt in my mind that the original meaning and the original intent here behind the word indecent was sexual fidelity, a lack of sexual fidelity. It was talking about sexual sin by a wife. And one of the reasons why I say that is that when you get to the New Testament, where we are right now in Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus is using this as an illustration, he says, you have heard it said, or it has been said, uh, when we begin in verse 31, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of di divorce. But then he goes on and says, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. The two words marital unfaithfulness in my NIV Bible come from a single word in the Greek language. The New Testament was originally written in the Greek language, and that's the Greek word porneia. Now, we've talked about the word porneia before. It is most often in our English translated Bibles translated as sexual immorality. In modern English Bibles, it's translated sexual immorality. In older translations, you've got to be my age and older to understand this, it's oftentimes translated fornication, but that's just not a word that we use very often. People understand what sexual immorality is a whole lot better than they understand what fornication is. But, but the bottom line is this, that word porneia was a broad, a very broad word that describes any kind of sexual activity that takes place outside of the bond or the covenant of a marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. And based on that, I don't think there's any, any doubt that the original meaning of that word in the Hebrew language for indecent, that word erva, dealt with improper sexual contact. Or conduct, But the religious leaders had embraced a more liberal interpretation, and as the result, they had basically got into a position where they could have a no-fault divorce just on a whim, just because your wife came home and there was something about her that day that was displeasing to you, or there was something that she didn't do well enough to meet your standard that could be displeasing to you. And in the end, because they embraced this liberal interpretation, whatever that displeasing thing was, they put under the umbrella of being, of being indecent and a divorce was granted. And so when we read Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, what Jesus is basically saying is, listen, I know that this is what you have heard and this is what you have practiced, but it's not that simple. That's basically what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, you're not allowed to treat your life, your, your wife, like a possession that can be discarded on a whim. And you don't break your word, you don't break your commitment. This is the other part. You don't break your word and your commitment in a marriage relationship without consequences. And so that's why he says, anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness, porneia, except for porneia, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman can commits adultery. So there's this contrast that we've been using for the past few weeks to expose the difference between religion, which is just the following of rules with no involvement of the heart, and righteousness, which is focused on the attitudes of the heart and the pursuit of a right ha heart. Religion says you can divorce your wife for pretty much any reason you want if she displeases you, and we'll say whatever it is that displeases you falls under the umbrella of indecent behavior. Righteousness says the only reason you can divorce your wife is if she's unfaithful to you sexually. Otherwise, if you divorce her, it causes her to commit adultery and, listen to me, friends, and has the power to set in motion an entire chain of adultery. Not just for the woman who's been divorced, 
but for whoever she gets involved with and whoever her divorced husband gets involved with. In a later teaching, in Luke chapter 16 and verse 18, Jesus said, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And you see that this chain can be set in motion. So Jesus says, you can't do this without consequence. Now, that's the very first commitment Jesus mentions. And let's just be honest today. Let's just be honest, brutally honest. This is a very serious subject, isn't it? Very serious. And I said earlier in the message that I doubt there's anybody here today who hasn't been affected firsthand in some way with regard to divorce in a negative way. My mother was married and divorced twice in my growing up. But this isn't a sermon today about marriage and divorce. I'll come back and talk about that a little bit more in a minute, but I want you to remember that. Because after Jesus uses divorce as an example to keep your commitments and your vows and your promises, he moves on and he talks about a whole other level. He talks about that beginning in verse 33. I know we read it out loud, but look back at it again as a reminder. Then Jesus says again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything else comes from, beyond this, comes from the evil one. All right, now look up here for a moment. I'm going to tell you, this gets, this gets kind of tedious right here. And the reason why I say that is that I'm just going to try to make this really simple. Because, and I'm not embellishing this when I say this. We could literally, friends, we could literally spend hours and hours talking about this because this whole thing about the swearing of oaths and the right and the wrong way to do it, this involves multiple verses from the Old Testament related to the Old Testament law, multiple interpretations of those verses, and multiple rabbinic traditions that had been added on to the law. They didn't come from God. They came from man. So I'm just going to tell you this. I'm simplifying it all down. You just have to trust me and tell you this. The swearing of oaths was a huge part of life in the ancient world, and the Scriptures gave very specific guidelines related to the right and the wrong of the swearing of those oaths. I'm going to give you three examples of scriptures, and it doesn't even scratch the surface. The first one is found in Leviticus 19. Let's look at that verse. Okay, so this came in the part of the law where God's people were being told how they were supposed to live in the world so that they could be distinct. And they, God said, do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. How many times have you heard somebody say, I swear to God? So what's God basically say about that? Don't do it, right? I mean, it's just become casual in our modern-day culture. But it wasn't, there was nothing casual about it in ancient days with regard to God. Okay, let's look at another. I think it comes from Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. When a man makes a vow to the Lord, okay, this is now a promise to God. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must, everyone say must, must not break his word but must do everything he said. You make a promise to God, you better keep it. 
The last one comes from the book of Deuteronomy 23, 21. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it, for the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. You make a vow that you don't follow through on, and God's involved in it, then that is sin. The Bible calls that sin. Now, again, I'm telling you, those verses just scratch the surface, especially if you begin to involve all the rabbinic tradition that had been added in related to the swearing of vows over the years. And so, these are just a few examples. Basically, listen, think of it like this, and you can write this down in your notes. You can write this down in the margin of your Bible next to verses 33 through 37. Jesus is talking about what was a common practice called evasive swearing evasive swearing because since the scriptures were so clear about the danger of not keeping your vows and your oaths and your promises over the centuries a whole system of distinctions and traditions had been developed by the Jews primarily the religious leaders where a, vo a, a vow or an oath or a promise was binding only to the degree that it was related to God's name let me say it like this you could be really careful about the way you swore an, a, vo a, a vow or an oath or made a promise, and if you didn't say the wrong words, then it could leave you room to wiggle out of it in the end. And strictly speaking, according to the law, you'd be okay. Remember, Jesus is contrasting the law, which is just the following of rules with no involvement with the heart, with righteousness, which is all about the heart. Let me give you an example of uh, how this had become. This is pretty brief. Uh, actually, this, this, uh, this system that had been developed that enabled you to make a vow that you could wiggle out of had become so detailed that it was pretty complicated. But here's an example. Swearing by heaven and earth was not permanently binding, if you did it the right way. Swearing by Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, was not permanently binding if you did it the right way. Remember, we read earlier that you weren't to swear by Jerusalem because that's the footstool of God, but if you could do it the right way, and here's one of the right ways to do it. You could swear by Jerusalem as long as you weren't facing Jerusalem. And this is kind of the way, this is the kind of the way it went. So you could swear by Jerusalem, just make sure that you know your geography or you've got a compass in your hand. And the result was, you can imagine the results, the result was that people would word their oaths and their promises and their commitments in a way that allowed them to get out of it later if they wanted to. And so here's the bottom line. Jesus is challenging us to make our commitments, to make our vows, and to make our promises with integrity. And remember that when we make a vow or an oath or a promise, we are accountable first and foremost not to the Scriptures, first and foremost, not to the people around us. We are accountable first and foremost to God. Now, the truth is, this is a big issue for a lot of people. Maybe it's a big issue for you. I'd be lying if I would have said that I never made a promise that I didn't keep. It's a big issue for all of us. We don't always think it's that big a deal, but this is an important thing. And so what we need to do is we need to, we need to make three commitments that will help us to live up to the righteousness that Jesus requires from us. And I'm going to make them real simple and real quick. These are, the out, these are the inserts or the blank lines on your insert. The first one is this. When it comes to making promises or vows or commitments, don't look for loopholes. Don't look for loopholes. I read a story this past week. A pastor was writing about a friend of his who came to him and said, I, I'm going to divorce my wife because I have biblical grounds to divorce my wife because she's committed adultery. And the pastor was shocked. He'd known this family forever. And, 
and he just could imagine that happen. I'd be the same way with some of you. If you, some of you came to me and told me you were getting a divorce because of some unfaithfulness, I, first thing I'd do would be shocked. Second thing I'd do is I would take whoever it was and I would kick you right in the, right in the, in the butt. That's what I would do, okay? But when he further questioned him, he had to admit that his wife had committed adultery based on Matthew chapter 5 and verse 28. We talked about this last week. Verses 27 and 28 said, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. That's religion following the rules. But righteousness comes up in verse 28. Jesus says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So here's the deal. The wife had admitted to the husband that she had had lustful thoughts about another man. And so he seized on that to say that she had committed adultery. And now he had the opportunity to divorce his wife. He had permission from God to divorce his wife. Well, I want you to listen to me. I know that's just a story somebody else told, but I want you to listen to me. That's the exact kind of legalistic loophole that Jesus says don't look for. It's a waste of time. This is not a part of what we're talking about. We, we, we don't spend our time looking for a back door to get out of our promises and our obligations and our vows and our commitments. We need to take them more seriously. Look at these words on the screen that Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 4. Read them with me. Let me hear your voices. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. Live up to your vows. As far as God is concerned, when we make promises, when we make commitments, when we make oaths, when we make vows, there's no small print. There's no loopholes. We see that in the first illustration Jesus used with regard to divorce. Because basically he was saying, you can't pull a single scripture out of context to justify divorcing your wife because she's not a good cook or because she's not as attractive as you'd like her to be or whatever it might be. I don't know. I don't know what it could be. Stop looking for loopholes. If you made a promise, if you made an oath, if you made a vow, then you live up to it. Did you ever see the movie Founder, The Founder? It's not been out that long. It's the true story of Ray Kroc, who turned the McDonald's franchise, the McDonald's uh, hamburger restaurant into a, a, a worldwide billion-dollar franchise. It's, it's a pretty incredible story. I, I watched it on the airplane coming back from Vienna. Ray Kroc was a salesman. He sold the machines that made milkshakes in local uh, restaurants. And uh, he, he, got, he got a call from his corporate office one day, he was on the road, and there was a restaurant called McDonald's in San Bernardino, California, who had bought more volume than he had ever sold before. And he was so intrigued by that, he was, even though he was thousands of miles away, he got in his car and he drove all the way to San Bernardino so he could see it for himself. And when he got there, he saw this really clean, really efficient, very popular little restaurant fast food restaurant called McDonald's. He didn't have the golden arches at the time, but after he got to know uh, the brothers who started the restaurant, their names were um, um, Dick and Mac McDonald, they showed him some renderings of restaurants with the golden arches, and he couldn't get it out of his mind. He was fascinated by the restaurant, so he went back and eventually talked them into allowing him to franchise the restaurant. They were reluctant. They wanted to keep things the way they always had been, but to make a long story short, he franchised this restaurant till it became uh, what it is today, this, this billion-dollar uh, restaurant chain that is not just national but global. Well, there came a time when he forced Dick and Mac McDonald out of the business. He just bought him out completely, bought out everything 
um, lock, stock, and barrel. And in the movie, he did it for $2.7 million. He asked them to name a price. They said $2.7 million. And uh, they had gone to their attorney, and they said, if you ask $2.7 million, the $700,000 will cover all your legal expenses and your taxes, and both of you can have, you can pocket a million dollars. Now, a million dollars sounds like a lot of money, right? Right? Hey, if that doesn't sound like a lot of money to you, then I'm anxious to see the offering this morning. <laughs> Be careful what you say. It sounds like, my point is, and I know, you know what I mean, it sounds like a lot of money, but in the context we're talking about here, it's not a lot of money. So they came to the final table to sign the contract, and, and the $2.7 million selling price was in the contract, along with they had asked to retain ownership of the original McDonald's there in San Bernardino, California, and that was in the contract. But Ray Kroc told them that there was no way they could put the other thing they asked for in the contract, and that was 1% annually of the sales of all the restaurants, 1% annually. He said, and for all kinds of reasons, you know how that goes, that it wasn't going to be allowed by this person, by that person. He said, but here's what I'll do. I'll stand up right now, and I'll give you my hand. I'll shake hands with both of you, and I'll guarantee you, promise you, that I'll continue to pay you the 1% annual revenue of sales. And they shook his hand. And at the end of the movie, they showed, you know how they do the screen write-over, that not one dime of the 1% had been paid up to that date. And, and at that point, it was worth in excess of $100 million a year. A million dollars sounds like a lot of money, doesn't it? A hundred million dollars sounds like a lot more. Now, strictly speaking, you could say that Ray Kroc was operating by the letter of the law. It wasn't in the contract, but he had given his word. He shook hands and made a promise and a vow. And Jesus is telling us, stop looking for loopholes. Do what you say you're going to do. Yet you let your yes be yes and your no be no. And that's a good way to do business. That's a good way to do life. Write down the second thing real quickly. We'll run out of time. When you make a promise to someone, you have to fulfill that promise. You can't change your mind. So this is it. Number two, live with it till you live up to it. Live with it till you live up to it. You know how it's not uncommon to see a professional athlete who has a particularly great year all of a sudden say, you know what, I'm not playing again until I renegotiate my contract? I mean, that's just what happens. That's a common thing. But it's not a right thing. It's not a right thing. If you signed a contract, you gave a promise, you gave a guarantee that you're going to play X amount of years for X amount of dollars, whether you play good or whether you play bad, you just need to live with it till you live up to it with regard to the contract, you know. I've never seen somebody go back and say, you know what, I had a really poor year this year. Why don't we just take about $500,000 off my contract? I don't feel like I earned it. But really, it should work both ways, don't you think, if that's going to be your mindset? When it comes to commitments, you need to live up to it. You need to live with it until you live up to it, whatever it might be. There's a, great, there's a great psalm. It's Psalm 15. Uh, psalm 15 begins with the words, Lord, may, who, who may dwell in your sanctuary and who may live on your holy hill? And then it describes the people who do this. And in verse 4, it says, uh, who despises a vile man, but who honors those who fear the Lord. And then it says this, who keeps his oath even when it hurts. Even when it hurts. You ever made a promise that you've regretted? I think we probably all have, but we need to figure out a way to fulfill the obligation so that we're not bound to it any longer. Now, divorce is another great example of this. 
this is another great example. I want you to listen to what I'm about to say really closely. I don't have a simple view of divorce. I do not. I don't want anybody to walk away accusing me of that. You know, we've just read one passage of Scripture, one very brief passage of Scripture about this. I, I do and I don't. I do and I don't have a simple view of divorce. I just understand life in the world, and I know how difficult life can be sometimes. But sometimes we have to live with it until we live up to it. Write down this third thing. This is another area that's true is when it comes to borrowing money that we don't repay, which is a big deal in the American culture that we live into. How many of you know the Bible says that's a bad thing, to borrow money and not repay it? Psalm 37 in verse 21 says, the wicked borrow and do not repay. The wicked, he calls people who don't repay wicked. That's the language of the scripture. The third thing is this, don't make a careless promise or don't make careless promises. Ecclesiastes 5.5, and Tyson, you can come real close, says it's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. I don't think most people make the, a promise with the intention of breaking it. I just think a lot of people make careless promises. And we make promises that if we were honest, we probably know that we're going to have a real hard time fulfilling, but we do it in the moment to get what we want. Stop doing that. Because broken promises destroy your credibility, destroys your relationships with others. It can even cause a barrier between you and God. So quit doing it. And listen, going back to marriage, going back to marriage, I'm going to tell you something. It's been my experience as a pastor for 37 years that most marriage issues begin from the beginning. And if you're a mom and dad right now and you still have kids at home, of all the important responsibilities you have, you have a responsibility to prepare them for marriage one day. Is that a difficult thing? It absolutely is. But it is a critical responsibility that you cannot abdicate. Because if you don't prepare them for what marriage is going to be like, the world's going to do it. And who do you think is going to be better? You need to do this. Now, the very first way you prepare them is you model a good marriage from in front of them every day. Husbands, love your wives, and wives, be submissive to your husbands the way the Bible talks about. But when things don't work, you prepare your children for marriage by, you, by talking to them about. To the degree that they're able to understand and that you're able to be comfortable, you talk to them about why sometimes in marriage things don't work. You prepare them to keep them from making a foolish, careless promise that they can't keep. Well, let me just say this as we close. This is some serious things to talk about, but uh, what do we do, folks? Honestly, what do we do in those moments when we have to be fearlessly honest about the truth that the Bible gives us all these instructions and all these commands and all these guidelines, and when we look at them, we see, I failed here, I failed here, I failed here, and I failed here. What do we do? You tell me, what do I do from my side of the pulpit, shepherding a congregation of thousands of people who are just like me in that they fail routinely to live the righteous life that God calls them to? What do I do? What do we do? How, we, how do we handle that? How do we respond to that? Well, here's the answer I'm going to give you today. We remember that the Bible tells us not only how much God hates sin, the Bible also tells us how much God loves sinners.
and we never let that leave our mind. And if we have any doubt about how much God loves sinners, we remember the words of Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 where Paul writes and says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so when I look honestly at my life and I make a line, I said, this is where I sinned and this is where I failed and this is where I knew, I flat out knew what the right thing to do was and I flat out did the wrong thing for no other reason than my own selfishness or my own rebellion. 